have you made a podcast before? No, this was my first podcast. Have you worked in radio before? No, I, 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 you know, I, I used to always call into like radio shows and things of that nature, but never actually uh, being a host or anything like that. How about television? No. Have you worked in any media before? No. And so you mean to tell me that the first time you're involved with producing a podcast, your work is a finalist for a Pulitzer Prize? Yes. Amazingly, yes. Hi, this is Rob. I'm the host for How Sound from PRX and Transom. How Sound features the backstory to great audio storytelling. Um, I just need to uh, test my levels on my recording here a little bit. Can you just tell me what you had for breakfast? Uh, Doritos and Cheetos. <laughs> Oh, I am definitely going to Chaparral's house for breakfast from now on. Which one did you eat first? <laughs> uh, I tell you, it was like a mixture. <laughs> Chaparral has the best laugh, right? Well, despite that funny start to our conversation, we got serious quickly because the subject of the podcast she hosted is profoundly serious. Chaparral was the host and central character for Somebody. It's a podcast that recounts her relentless effort to discover what happened to her murdered son. In addition to the podcast being nominated for a Pulitzer, the series won other awards. Best Serialized Story from the Third Coast Festival, a Scripps Howard Award for Excellence in Radio Podcast Coverage, and Adweek named Chaparral Podcast Host of the Year. It's all rather stunning, given Chaparral's closest experience in audio consisted of calling into talk shows to share her opinion. Or maybe it's not so stunning, because she's clearly a powerhouse. It's obvious as soon as she starts telling the story. Here's the opening couple of minutes to the series. When my son Courtney was 21 years old, he got a BMW convertible. He loved that car like it was his girlfriend. He would talk to her like, good morning, hello, baby. Buenos dias, baby, buenos dias, como estas, mi amor? The first time Bebe rolled into our driveway, it was late at night. Courtney and his drop-top BMW. Courtney had the music blasting all the way up. You did it! You did it, Courtney. It's like, like a little block party, you know, in the middle of my driveway. He had the top down. It wasn't even that hot outside, but of course, he had the top down. It was a beautiful moment, and that was probably one of the most happiest moments I've seen him. Twenty-five ten, Robert. Twenty-five ten, Robert. This got flagged down in Granite Central. A gentleman just said he was shot. Okay, we'll get EMS rolling to the 25th district. Okay. Oh. Yeah, send an ambulance right away. But not even one year later, my son wound up with a bullet in his back outside a Chicago police station. And there are still so many unanswered questions about what led to the death of 22-year-old Courtney Copeland. Family members say Copeland was on his way to a friend's house when he was shot through his car window 
a bullet hit his back. He managed to flag down a police car in front of the 25th District Station and was rushed to a hospital. The wound was fatal. There's what you hear on the news. That Courtney got shot, drove himself to a police station, where officers did everything they could to help him. His mother's heart tonight left in pieces. And then there's the truth. I believe that not enough has been done to solve Courtney's murder. What would really? you like what would you like done that I haven't done? I personally would have went back and re-interviewed everybody to make sure that we interviewed the police. Oh, absolutely. My name is Shapiro Wells. I'm Courtney Copeland's mom. And this is somebody. Everybody, somebody. Somebody was released in 2020. The story is told in seven episodes. It's categorized as a true crime podcast, and to be sure, it is a true crime podcast. But I have to say that labeling is unfortunate because so much of that genre is just ridiculously melodramatic and thin. Somebody, by contrast, feels real. It feels honest. It gets at the emotional truth of Chappelle's story without stooping to made-for-TV cliches like so many other true crime podcasts. And clearly, Chappelle is a natural storyteller, and much of the power of the series comes from that. But there's also the recording she made on her own right out of the gate after her son was killed. She says she wasn't thinking about a podcast then. She was just a distraught mother who was unconvinced by the story the police told her. She made recordings to keep track of her research, events and feelings and theories, all the things. The idea came from Santita Jackson, a Chicago radio talk show host. You need to record, that is, write down everything that you heard and saw and felt, because you will lose it as we go, as time goes on. But we need Santita's to advice, what the to write said, everything down, that was the best advice I could have been given. In the beginning, you get the truth. Cover-up happens after the first day or so. But in the beginning, you get the truth. I went straight into investigator mode. I wrote up a timeline, and I made a voice recording on my phone to keep track of all the details. I told that recorder everything I was thinking about the night I got the news. (sighs) So... Approximately around 2.15 a.m., I receive a thunderous beat on my door. And I told that recorder about my conversation with detectives. I began to question through my pain, can I talk to the officer? I need to know exactly what my son said to him. And they said that that's the only thing that he had said, that he had been shot. I also told that recorder about what I really believed happened to Courtney. I believe my son was stopped and pulled out his vehicle because they ran the place. And they saw a young black man drive in a Hispanic area with a car that was not registered in a black person's name. Along with making voice memos, Shapiro hunted for documentation of what happened the night of the murder. This was something that 
kept me up every night not knowing what happened to my son. And so I tried to figure out what can I gather? Who can I talk to? Where can we go? What files do I need to obtain? But navigating the system was tough. She didn't know which department was responsible for what. Who keeps video camera footage? What about police communication? Where's that? How do you file a Freedom of Information request, which is known as a FOIA? Shapiro says she went in blind and she felt no one was listening. And I did that for about a year until I hit a brick wall and I couldn't go any further because uh, I had filed all the FOIA requests that they had denied or they would send me redacted files and, and I had no other place to go. I was literally at my wit's end. In a last-ditch effort, she wrote to the Invisible Institute. I was like, if, if they don't respond to me to help me, then I'm just going to let this go. And I'm just going to mourn my son and leave it alone. The Invisible Institute is a team of journalists based on the south side of Chicago. They're largely focused on police accountability and social justice. For instance, they won a Pulitzer for a report on the connection between race and attacks by police dogs. And the Institute did respond to Shapiro. She says they were impressed with her story and her documentation, and they agreed to work with her. Now someone was listening, she thought. She says this is what Jamie Calvin, the director of the Institute, told her. I know that we may not be able to get criminal justice, but let's try for narrative justice. Shapiro began working with Allison Flowers, an investigative journalist at the Institute, Bill Healy, a freelance reporter, and Sarah Geis, who was the story editor on the series. They outfitted Shapiro with a proper mic and recorder. Whether I was talking with friends or family, I would tell them, hey, I'm going to record this just in case we happen to come across something that's important or something that we missed. So I will always have it on and let people know. People often talk about the power of a microphone. It's, it's like a, it's a kind of passport to ask questions that you might not ordinarily ask. Did you find that having a microphone gave you that power? I would say that it did, you know, because when you think about race and accountability, those are uh, subjects people rarely want to touch. But I felt comfortable enough because it was a lived experience for me to be able to convey that in such a way uh, that gave me power to be able to walk in the truth about what happened with Courtney. Um, But once I became acclimated to the process of the podcast, I felt empowered. I felt like I was actually doing something to help his case, even though I was I was working all this time. But I felt that it, I, I was getting somewhere. I was accomplishing something. It just wasn't going on deaf ears. So I felt that I was actually making strides to finding justice for Courtney. Did you find it hard at all to balance um, Shapiro, the mom, looking to find out what exactly happened to Courtney, and Shapiro, the podcast producer, documenting your experience? I I, I don't think I ever looked at it differently. I was always Shapiro the mom. I never viewed myself as a a journalist or a producer or host of this podcast. I, I always perceived myself as a mom on a mission to help find justice for her son. Tell me about recording the police. A week after Courtney died, me, my husband Brent, and my mom, Renee, we met with police. 
The station was old and dilapidated. Let me, uh, let me grab your... Brent recorded the whole thing on his phone from his pocket. Hello? I originally only recorded police because I wanted to make sure that everything they said to me and everything I said to them was accurate. Because what I would do is I would go home and type it up so I can remember what was said. I asked them about the cameras right outside the station, the ones that would have shown what happened when my son pulled so you're up. you're talking about the police station. The police station. The those, cameras now don't work. Now those cameras do not work. That's crazy. They said they didn't work. Well, Let me I, tell you something. <laughs> I arrived as a young policeman in that station in May wow. of 1987. I went to the 25th district. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Those cameras were And I was there in January of 91 until we came here four years ago. Multiple requests over the year to find the district commander to have... Right outside the police station, there's a big park with three schools. So to tell me those cameras hadn't worked in decades... That was unacceptable. Right. Uh, I do share. I do share your frustration when things don't work for us. One of the things I wanted, I wanted to make the audience feel that they were going physically on this journey with me. That every emotion, every every turn, I wanted you to feel like you were in the room with me, because I think that you know once you tug on those emotional strings, that is what moves people to help you. To, to get your mission accomplished. Shapiro recorded another meeting with the police a year after the first meeting, and she says when they initially met, she played along with the police because she needed their help. This time, she didn't come to play. I'm not denying that he didn't put any work into it. I'm just trying to make him more thorough. That's my right. This is my child. They kept trying to tell me how much work they put into the case. I spent a good amount of time driving around that neighborhood looking for video and trying to find video evidence. But they missed stuff. I know they did. Because I was talking to people that they had never talked to. And if I could have talked to the on-scene officers myself, I would have. 100% certainty that this is not a possibility. So what you're telling me is... There's a moment when you're confronted by a police officer who says, and I know you've been recording me. Mm-hmm. That was Detective Amato. Just so you know, because I know you've been recording me every conversation. You're recording me from the first time, uh, first day we met. Why do you say that? Cause do I have a reason to record you? I don't know. I don't know why he felt that way, because it's not like he saw it. But um, he, he assumed that that's what I was doing, and he was right. But like I told him in the recording, I don't have nothing to hide, and you shouldn't either. Because our, our goal together should be to find the killer of Courtney Huffman. Your whole f- focus on this thing is, is something the police did wrong. No, I just wanted to know what happened to my son. And to me, nothing was off the table. So what you're saying is he was calling 911 while he was on the phone uh, while the police were there. I should tell you, the police claim Shapiro's recordings were illegal. The Invisible Institute felt differently about her rights and obviously went ahead and used those recordings. But I mention this just to say that if you're a reporter, it's important to check on the legality of recording people without their knowledge. The laws vary from state to state. Okay, so eventually, Shapiro gathered enough tape to produce the series, and the staff at the Invisible Institute wrote scripts. 
They were based partly on interviews and conversations with Shapiro, as well as her research. And when drafts were ready, they'd send them to her and she'd take a look, give them a once over and double check the facts as she understood them. She also looked at the language to make sure it sounded like her. Did you ever tell them, you know what? No, I can't say that. The disclosure. Shapiro's referring to a disclaimer. In fact, we both misspoke and called it a disclosure. But either way, it was the following statement at the start of some episodes that was required by the podcast distributor, iHeartRadio. What you are about to hear in the following episode does not implicate the Chicago police in the murder of Courtney Copeland. I was not willing to give that disclosure to basically, um, you know, say that, you know, we're not implicated in the CPD and everything, because in my mind, I can't 100 percent say that they didn't do it. I still don't know. I tell them at this point, everybody's a suspect until you bring me a suspect, including the police. Because that's a lot of stuff that y'all did to him that contributed to his death. So, you know, I wasn't willing to to give that disclosure. And they agreed uh, as well that they did not want me or anybody on the team to give that disclosure, to let a random person give it. Yeah, I remember hearing those disclosures. And I, I, I'll, I'll tell you, I, I thought they were peculiar. I mean, I guess I understand from a legal perspective, they were just trying to cover the bases. But on the other hand, it seemed like this podcast was in part about investigating whether or not the police actually were involved with the murder of your son. And so to say that at the beginning seemed to take the wind out of the sails of the story. Well, I think that, you know, we only wanted to report what we could prove. I guess that's the best way to say it. We could not prove that CPD pulled the trigger. So we couldn't implicate them in something that we can't prove. However, we could prove that he was handcuffed. We could prove that uh, that they allowed him to die and lay on the ground for 13 minutes and not assist him. We could prove that they ran his name and, uh, and, and treated him as a suspect as opposed to a victim. These are things that we could prove. And what we what we thought was a bigger picture is that what happened to Courtney actually happens more often than the police actually shooting them. But in my mind, I still can't clear them because there's still a lot of cameras that ironically disappeared. There's still so much unknown, but we couldn't prove that they pulled the trigger. So we had to make that decision and tell exactly about the process that we went through. Having Shapiro narrate this series is an unusual choice. Typically, in stories like this, there's a reporter and there are characters. There's a separation. The reporter narrates and the characters tell their story in quotes. But on somebody, Shapiro wore both hats. I think that it was very innovative and groundbreaking. And it gives the families more power to tell their story in the way that they want it to. I would say that... um, in working with the Invisible Institute and the entire staff and team of, from the producers to the directors, everybody who worked on the project, they always put my needs first, my voice first, what I felt. They always wanted to make sure I was okay with everything. And so it wasn't that they were taking over my story. They were helping to push my 
my story over into the limelight. Shapiro says recording the narration for the first episode was the most difficult because it's the episode that details the night Courtney was shot. Initially, they recorded narration for that episode in the basement of a reporter's house, but the sound quality wasn't great, so they switched to a studio. Shapiro retracked the basement recordings, but not the scene where she goes to the hospital to see Courtney. The producers did not want to ask her to track that again, and you'll hear the difference between the studio recording and the basement recording in this clip, as well as the reason why Shapiro wasn't asked to re-record. I remember my husband Brent driving our family to Illinois Masonic Hospital. My mom, Courtney's sisters, my aunt, we were all there. We rolled in our town and country minivan, and it was in the middle of the night. And I don't even recall any other cars being on the road. Right away, the staff wanted to take us to the family room. But I knew, I knew what the family room was. That's when they tell you that your kid is dead. And I didn't want to go. They sent in this nurse, a very kind nurse. She stayed with me. She held my hand to try to keep me calm. I had no idea then how important she would become to my investigation. That's when the doctor came out and told us the news, you know, that he had died from a gunshot wound. And we were like, well, why, why, what do you mean a gunshot wound? Who shot him? When the doctor said my, Courtney was shot, that was like an unbelievable, we didn't hear anything else, but everybody drops to the floor screaming, yelling, okay, oh no, oh no, oh no, because that was the last thing that we would think Courtney would be involved in is any form of shooting because he was not that type of individual, okay? And he was a nonviolent person. He would, you know, he would not be involved in anyone that would have guns. The doctor told us that when Courtney arrived, they opened up his chest to try to save him. I'd been at the hospital for over an hour, and I still hadn't seen my son. And you know, as a mother, you want to have that confirmation that this is indeed your child. They told me I couldn't see him until detectives got there. And I told them, I said, well, I'm going to tell you right now. If I can't see my son, I'm going to tear this whole hospital up. They finally let us see Courtney. He was on a hospital bed in the trauma unit. After a few moments, I asked everyone to leave. Because I had to be with him. I had to be with him by myself. I began to touch him. His body was still warm. I caressed his face and kissed his forehead. And I told him, I was like, I'm sorry I wasn't there for you. When you needed me the most. 
and I walked out of the room and then it really hit me that Courtney was gone and I just collapsed. Hmm. I told Shapiro how hard the podcast was to listen to as a father, that it's unlikely I will ever fully know her pain, but I could empathize. I told her the moments when she cries are especially tough to hear, like in that narration we just heard. I think the producers made the right choice to use that version of the tracking. Even though the sound quality wasn't great, the tape was too powerful not to. As I talked to Shapiro, it dawned on me the predicament she may have placed herself in, taking on the role of host. Reliving her experience editing scripts. Reliving her experience again, narrating. Reliving it another time when she listened to the final episodes alone in her car in the driveway as she did. And once again during media interviews, including mine, and the one she did afterward with a team from NBC's Dateline. I told her it all seemed like maybe it was too much. In response, she said no matter the pain or trauma she has suffered, it is far less than what her son experienced. And in the end, she feels she's found narrative justice. When I think about what happened to Courtney that night, and when I tell you that a lot of people failed him that day, because they didn't see him as human. They didn't see my son as their child. They didn't see uh, him as a white child. They saw him as a black boy driving around in a fancy car that he could have stolen. And they were thinking of every negative connotation they could to replace who Courtney really was. And so the narrative justice that I'm receiving is that the world now see Courtney for who he was and how this tragic loss has not only impacted me and my family, but it has impacted every listener who has listened to the podcast and all of his friends and family. Everybody feels the deepness and the sadness that I feel for my son just by listening to this podcast. When I started this journey, no one would listen to me. And now millions have. Sarah Geis and Bill Healy both worked on Somebody for the Invisible Institute. And while they didn't appear in this episode of How Sound, they answered a slew of my questions via email. So thank you both. I was just saying to a friend the other day that when someone finishes listening to an episode of How Sound, like this one, I hope they'll say, huh, I think I need to try that in the next story I produce. Well, look, you don't have to wait for another episode of How Sound to think that. There's always something at transom.org, the website for all things audio storytelling. From gear reviews to manifestos on the craft from producers like Anna Sale and Leela Day and Chenjerai Kumanyika to primers on editing stories and sound design, everything is at transom.org, including all the past episodes of How Sound. So hop on over. Genevieve Sponsler, thanks a zillion for editing my scripts. Keep catching my mistakes, please. And my never-ending thanks to PRX, as well as the Transom crew in Woods Hole for all the support and encouragement over the years. I'm Rob Rosenthal. Thank you for listening. From PRX. And Transom.org.